I remember the first time that it gnawed at me. This like deep concern that seemed to cloud my otherwise clearly developing worldview. I was only a couple of years into experiencing real spiritual connection for the first time in my life. And it seemed centered in the person of Jesus. I was a theater student in college. And our educational model meant that we were with like the same cohort of about 18 students and one acting teacher nearly every day for three years. Okay? So it was like a very intimate experience with these people. Okay? We really got to know one another. We were very connected. And I can still remember the feeling that formed in the pit of my stomach when one morning my acting teacher for a lesson shared with us his story of deepest angst. Okay, he described falling in love with the beauty of God at a young age, being raised in the Catholic Church. And then, as a teenager, being internally tortured as he realized that he was only attracted to boys. He would pray feverishly for God to change him. And then he came, sadly, to the heartbreaking conclusion after years of praying and searching and praying some more. Came to the conclusion that God must either not exist or if God does, God does not love him. Hearing my teacher share this moment of deepest anguish, it just broke my heart. I was a very young in my faith, but I was known to be a Christian in the room. And I had no idea in that moment how to defend that theology. I feared the implied questions of my professor and my peers about my choice to identify as a Jesus follower. Because this did not seem like the God that I was getting to know. I found myself wrestling in a deep way with what felt like a profound disconnect between my experience of Jesus-centered faith and how the churches and ministries that were nurturing me in that faith and helping me to develop it seemed to approach this topic. The books I was given on the topic when I asked my questions, they just they left a bad taste in my mouth. Even as I tried to consider swallowing them. And as I felt this dissonance grow between what I was experiencing with the queer people I loved and what my church and my college ministry were teaching about homosexuality, I just couldn't shake the feeling that I was stumbling on something deeply problematic. Something that might even have the power to dismantle my young faith altogether. It felt like something taboo to even consider aloud with others. Though it's true that my classmates may have looked at me with suspicion, I had the same problem with my church friends, right? To name my discontentment with their view on gay relationships opened me up to great deep suspicion from my faith community. I felt if I told them what I was thinking about, I wouldn't be considered a person of faith. And all of that left me wondering, is this whole faith thing just like kind of like a a rickety house of blocks that could just topple if the right brick was removed 
kind of like a cosmic game of Jenga, right? If I couldn't settle this gay question, is the whole thing just going to fall apart? But what do I do with these experiences that I believe are of God, that seem so powerful and real? If this all falls apart, where do I put those? Well, I'm starting a new series today. I'm I'm calling it Reconstructing Faith. And in this series, we're going to explore the phenomenon of deconstructing parts of our spiritual frameworks, as well as what it means to build something new after that's happened. Some of you might not fully resonate with what I'm talking about, okay? Maybe perhaps you're new to faith altogether, so you don't feel like you've had to really have anything particularly problematic that needs to be reexamined. Some of you might feel like, you know, you've been doing Jesus-centered faith a long time, and you don't really perceive any, any issues with it. But chances are, wherever you're at, at some point or another, whether it's regarding your faith or some other part of your worldview, something about how you approach life and view the world has had to go under examination, right? Something has put that little cloudy spot over the worldview that you had cultivated. And if it hasn't happened yet, then I would posit you just haven't lived long enough, right? Or maybe you've gotten really good at ignoring where I think this journey of deconstruction often starts. What I'm focusing on today, and I'm calling the questions in the dark. The questions in the dark. You probably know what kind of questions I mean. The ones that keep you up at night, right? The ones you might be afraid to confess to your friends, your spouse, your kids. They might be brought up by some raw moment of vulnerability from someone you love like happened with me. They might be prompted by something you've been reading. They might come with a medical diagnosis that you were not expecting. It's like the oh shit moment in your soul. You know, I pondered whether that was the appropriate word for today, but I think in this category, it merits it. Because just crap doesn't cut it. Right? When you get to that moment where you realize everything could fall apart if you follow this trail where you sense it might go. Those are the moments I'm talking about. Throughout this series, we're going to be exploring some of the questions that people in our community, all of you, not just me, have found themselves wrestling with. We're going to take time to listen to one another, to give each other space to name some of those questions out loud for those of us who are willing to do it. But today we're going to start by considering a character that actually appears in the Gospels, specifically the account of Jesus' life written by John. We're going to look at a character who had his own questions he was asking in the dark And consider a bit of the journey that asking those questions seemed to take him on. Okay? So we're going to look at John 3. I'll pick it up. You can read along if you like, either on the screen or if you have a a handout you want to read along with. Now a certain man, 
a Pharisee named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council, came to Jesus at night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God for no one could perform the miraculous signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus replied, I tell you the solemn truth. Unless a person is born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter his mother's womb and be born a second time, can he? Jesus answered, I tell you the solemn truth. Unless a person is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. What is born of the flesh is flesh. What is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must all be born from above. The wind blows wherever it will, and you hear the sound it makes, but do not know where it comes from and where it's going. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus replied, how can these things be? So here we have a character who is asking his own questions, actually in the dark of night, the story says, Nicodemus. And this is a man who has reason to keep these questions under wraps. There is a lot at stake for him. The text tells us he's from the religious class of Pharisees. Now, I want to say a word on Pharisees. The Pharisees were kind of a religious political party. They were one of the most influential of their day. And these guys tend to get a bad rap in church, honestly. But I think often that comes from Christians who read the Bible with very little knowledge of Jewish life, particularly first century Jewish life. So yes, these are the folks that Jesus often lost his patience with. They are some of the Jewish leaders who conspired to bring Jesus down. Not the only ones, but a significant group. They saw him as a real threat to their understanding of their faith and their role in it. But to see them as these like exclusively villainous characters is to paint them, I think, as two-dimensional instead of the complex human beings they were. Okay, this was the group of Jews in Jesus's day who were understood by all of Jesus's friends and peers, everyone in his culture, to be the most serious God followers. They took their faith so seriously. They cared about God. They studied their Torah fervently. They went above and beyond in their observance of the law. And it wasn't just because they had like religious OCD, maybe some of them but probably not all. They cared about observing the law carefully and scrupulously because in the faith that they had inherited, they understood that observing the law was how you honored God. And this guy, Nicodemus, isn't just a Pharisee. He is a leader, a member of what's called the ruling council, known in their day as the Sanhedrin. So the Sanhedrin was a body of local governance, okay? The Romans were occupying Israel at this time, but they allowed them to have their own kind of bodies of governance in each community. So it's like a city council or a congress, okay? And, and he's on the Sanhedrin of Jerusalem, which is the capital. So it's kind of like the most prominent one, the most powerful. We also know from the Talmud, Nicodemus appears in Jewish sources from the day. Okay, he was a known person even outside of the Gospels. Um, so we know from the Talmud, which is this Jewish source, that he was very wealthy. 
According to the source, he was one of the three most wealthy men in Jerusalem, which was the big city in Israel. So it's like Peter Thiel or Mark Zuckerberg or the Larry Page of his day. Okay? Super rich. So this guy is like being one of the richest CEOs in the country and also in the class of religious scholars and serving in the Senate all at the same time. Okay? That's who we're talking about. All right, I I summarize it this way. You can write down on your page. Um, Nicodemus was a man, next slide, yeah, with significant religious, political, and financial power in Jerusalem. Religious, political, and financial power. He's an important dude. And yet, for a guy who seemingly has everything, something's clearly troubling him. And at the center of his questions in the dark seemed to be the person of Jesus. So what is it about this Jesus that causes him to question? Now, this is early in John's account of Jesus' life. Remember, we're chapter 3. But John does something unique in the way he tells the whole story of Jesus. Whereas most of the gospel writers put this incident in which Jesus cleans out the temple right? Remember that with the the whip and he's driving the money changers out. They usually put that towards the end of the story in the last week of Jesus's life. But John puts it in the second chapter of his account, right at the beginning of Jesus's ministry, right before this story with Nicodemus. So we're not going to get into the different theories behind why John told the story differently than others. What matters for us is just the story John is telling. Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry, goes to Jerusalem. He makes a scene. He confronts the religious, commercial, and political establishments of his day from the beginning in this loud public way. And then he just backs it up by performing some miracles in Jerusalem that begin to further draw people's attention. And clearly, one of the people who's paying attention is Nicodemus who seems to have his own dissonant moment, his own oh shit kind of moment. As he sees this radical rebel confronting his power, his privilege, but he also sees that he has this extraordinary capacity to minister. So what does he do? I think there are a couple of ways Nicodemus could have responded, right? The first I'm going to say you could fill in if you want. He could have just dismissed Jesus outright. He could have dismissed Jesus outright. Simply refused to acknowledge the miraculous that everyone was witnessing because it did not fit his framework. He could have allowed his confirmation bias bubble to activate and only take in the information that confirmed his own worldview and just reject out of hand anything that challenges it. Because honestly... This is a popular way to deal with questions, right? Questions in the dark. We still do it today. Rather than give them any space, we can try to force our concerns through our mental framework that we've adopted, and we can look for things that confirm that, right? We may try to ignore the things that don't. Isn't that what cable news does for us? Or YouTube, right? Certainly, This approach seems to be how most of the elites of Jesus' day were handling Jesus, but not Nicodemus. He does something different. In the middle of the night, he puts on a cloak, 
and heads into the streets looking for this radical upstart rabbi. Instead of dismissing him, he brings his questions straight to Jesus. He brings his questions straight to Jesus. Jesus meets Nicodemus, and he speaks to the question that Nicodemus seems to be having a hard time articulating at the beginning. I think it's something like, how? How is this random carpenter turned rabbi from the backcountry able to speak to the powerful people of God in the capital of Jerusalem with, with so much authority? He must have the backing of God's own self, but how is that possible? And Jesus, in his answer, confronts all of Nicodemus' assumptions with a simple statement. Unless a person is born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. All the inherited status, all the financial wealth, all the social standing, all the religious training in the world, these are not the source of real authority. They don't open your eyes to see God at work in your midst. That comes only from being born from above. Now, quick aside, I know some of us have heard this passage preached, being told that that means a very specific thing, to be born from above, or maybe to be born again. Sadly, I think there are strains of the church today that have used this statement of Jesus to argue for a new kind of religious elitism. Perhaps the same thing that Jesus was actually trying to dismantle for Nicodemus. We're going to leave that debate to the side for another day. But I'm going to invite you to just focus afresh on what Jesus seems to be in this story, telling this powerful man in front of him. To me, he seems to be issuing an invitation to start again, to experience a new beginning, a beginning that's not based on the priorities of birth and family or social class. It's something beyond Something from like another kind of dimension. And so Jesus uses the language of from above. It's strained metaphorical language, but it does speak to we're not talking about the things of this reality, right? And this, this stirs more of Nicodemus's curiosity. He asks about it. How can a man be born when he's old? I really appreciate his honesty here, okay? Jesus has just said this, like, super countercultural thing, and it makes no sense to Nicodemus' experience or his worldview that he has inherited. But he doesn't get defensive, right? He doesn't get frustrated that he's something that doesn't fit. He doesn't just, like, smile and nod. Okay, Jesus, sure. He asks his questions in the dark. How can this be? Tell me what you mean. Help me understand. I don't get it, Jesus. And Jesus has an answer for him. He talks about two kinds of births. Yes, there's the one where your mom's water breaks and you're born into life as a baby. But that's not all that matters. There's another kind of life that Jesus seems to be inviting his followers to experience. A kind of new life he has in mind. A birth into the spirit. And what is this spirit? Jesus is describing the spirit with 
an image of a force that can't be controlled, that can't even be seen or traced. It's like the wind that blows. In the language here, uh, the word spirit is very connected to the word breath. So it's a sense of this wind, this breath of divinity. That's what I'm trying to invite you into. You can't control it. You can't manufacture it. You can't always even trace it. Instead, you simply have to surrender to the wind. Nicodemus is still confused, leaving him to utter the last words he says in this encounter. How can these things be? I think a lot of Christians call Nicodemus a coward for coming in the dark of night, or they say he's being like stubbornly pig-headed, not to just like kneel down and ask to be baptized as soon as Jesus speaks his first words. I don't see Nicodemus that way at all. In him, I see a human who is wrestling in a real way with his own scary wanderings in the night. And rather than just sit in those wanderings, rather than just stuff them or push them to the back of his mind and just become bitter and cynical, he follows his curiosity. He gives voice to his questions. He trusts Jesus with them. Perhaps he's already begun to realize that the world that he has helped construct for himself, the spiritual and social framework built around his understanding of God, has some problems. It's a world built with what Jesus seems to identify as, quote, the flesh, based on human effort, logic, experience. But when he brings his questions forward, when he asks them in the dark, Jesus invites him to step into something different, a new kind of life. Nicodemus, I believe, is beginning to realize he's going to need to dismantle some of his framework for understanding and following God and potentially build something else. He's going to need to do what we're calling deconstructing and reconstructing some things. Now, I've talked before here about my convictions about starting a gay-friendly church, but I don't think I have shared as much about that process of them starting. It was through those early moments of dissonance, sparked by experiences of vulnerability with folks like my acting teacher or with friends of mine who were finding themselves in a real way by coming out of the closet while I was finding myself in a real way by coming to faith in Jesus. And the questions I was asking in the dark around how those things could possibly coexist. If it was just something I was trying to work out in my head, the dissonance might have been too strong. It felt like it might be a deal breaker for that whole faith endeavor, like the Jenga might have just fallen apart. But I wasn't just working it out in my head. In that season, I was praying sincerely. I was trying to bring my questions to Jesus. How should I think about this? I found self-acceptance and the love of God in you, Jesus, and it's been profoundly powerful and healing to come into community and experience that love from other people. But I also know I can't bring my gay friends to church. What do I do with that? 
And one night when I was praying along those lines, I remember it was during a musical worship time with some other college students. I just felt like I got this really clear answer. I felt like Jesus was whispering to me in my spirit as I prayed. And the words I felt like Jesus was saying was, Leah, this is a really, really important question that you're asking. I'm really glad you're asking this question. And there's not a good answer for you right now. So I'm wondering if you can trust me and put this one on the shelf for a while. Not forever. We'll get to it, I promise. But for now, can you put this question on the shelf? Can you not have it front and center? Can we just know it's going to be tabled? Right? And for that moment, that was enough. I felt Jesus' invitation into mystery. I felt his permission to question what others seemed to say wasn't up for debate. And I felt peace with the not knowing, with being able to love my gay friends and to understand in that season that I wasn't going to be able to bring them to church and to believe that that wasn't the final picture. It was not everything, but it was enough to embark on a new journey with Jesus, a journey that I would now call the beginning of deconstructing and eventually reconstructing that part of my faith practice. In the same way, John 3 is not the end of Nicodemus' story. It's actually just the beginning. Nicodemus appears two other times in the Gospel of John, and each time we can see that he has moved along in his journey with Jesus. So the second time Nicodemus appears, it's not at night, it's during the light of day. And we see Nicodemus not isolated from his other powerful peers, but right in the midst of them. Okay, we see him in the place of power with the other power brokers. So the setup for this incident is that the Sanhedrin have now sent some of their security staff, their likes, their police, out to try to apprehend Jesus to arrest him and bring him to them. But when the officers find Jesus, he's preaching this like powerful stuff. He's offering all who are thirsty to come and drink for through him flow streams of living water. And the officers have like their jaws open. So we're going to pick up the story in verse 40. When they heard these words, some of the crowd began to say, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But still others said, no, for the Christ doesn't come from Galilee, does he? Don't the scriptures say the Christ is a descendant of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David lived? So there was a division in the crowd because of Jesus. Some of them were wanting to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Then the officers returned to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why didn't you bring him back with you? The officers replied, No one ever spoke like this man. Then the Pharisees answered, Oh, you haven't been deceived too, have you? None of the rulers or the Pharisees have believed in him, have they? But this rabble who do not know the law are accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus before and who was one of the rulers, said, Our law doesn't condemn a man unless it first hears from him and learns what he is doing, does it? They replied, Oh, 
you aren't from Galilee too, are you? Investigate carefully and you will see no prophet comes from Galilee. Okay, what's going on here? It's a short appearance, but it's a significant moment for Nicodemus. His peers are building a case against Jesus. Their framework for understanding God and the Messiah they believed God will send is firmly entrenched. Okay? They, they have become convinced no one from Galilee could possibly be God's deliverer. And so that's like their convenient way of simply dismissing Jesus outright, falsely accusing him of blasphemy and heresy without even questioning him. But Nicodemus sees the flaw in their logic, and he calls him on it. He's met this man. He's brought his questions in the dark to him, and now in the light of day, he pushes back. He questions his peers. Our laws don't condemn a man unless it first hears from him, learns what he's doing, doesn't it? The question's a direct confrontation of the scapegoating mechanism we discussed a few weeks ago. You can see it. It's already at play. Nicodemus's peers are trying to falsely accuse and silence Jesus. But Nicodemus is pointing out how they are bending what should be their own rules. No one should be assumed guilty before even standing trial. And the establishment system responds strongly to Nicodemus's probing. Because they get that this is not just an innocent question. He has just broken ranks with them. When they were trying to stand united against Jesus, saying to those officers, like, none of us have followed Jesus. We all know better. Immediately, those aligned with the system turn on Nicodemus for even asking to give the guy a fair trial. They seek to delegitimize him. I think this is a slide. They respond by seeking to delegitimize him. And they do it in two ways. Okay? First, they seem to be claiming that Nicodemus is emotionally compromised. That he's emotionally compromised. Again, in the Talmud, Jewish tradition actually notes that Nicodemus did have family estates in the region of Galilee. So here it seems that his peers are using that as a reason to discredit his critique. Oh, you're just sticking up from him because you're from Galilee. Make sense? Implying that he's like too personally invested to be objective. Or perhaps they simply attack his knowledge. Attack his knowledge, implying he's poorly educated. Oh, investigate carefully. You haven't read the, the Torah right? Trying to name that he just doesn't know enough, so they don't need to worry about his critique. So I spent several years living in that in-between place of feeling both profound dissonance with the church's teaching on homosexuality, but feeling like the question was unresolved for me. And then in my late 20s, around the time that I was actually beginning to sense a real call to pastoring and beginning a community like Haven, I had another profound moment with Jesus. I had this picture of myself in prayer, bringing all the queer people I had ever known and loved to an altar. And Jesus was there. And as each person was brought forward, he embraced them fully 
lovingly, huge bear hug, tears in his eyes, streaming down his face. And I watched and sobbed as I felt Jesus say, Leah, it's time to take this one off the shelf. For years, I'd been in a church where people believed that you could hear things of God for other people and sometimes encourage them with them. And every time someone prayed for me, for years, the word that people felt like they, God was giving them was, God has made you to be a pioneer or a trailblazer. It kind of felt like a cliche for me every time someone prayed because it happened so often. But I felt like in that moment, God said, Leah, this is what that's about. Are you willing to pioneer in this way? Are you willing to lead a community where all people can be brought fully to the altar and embraced? And though I knew that the structures I was a part of would likely have to be more deconstructed, what could I say at that point but yes to Jesus? And in the years since, since I've also moved from keeping my questions in the dark to challenging systems and structures I've at times been a part of, or walking with other brothers and sisters who have done the same, I've seen this same dynamic Nicodemus experienced at play. Because people get threatened when someone's deconstructing. People get threatened by another's deconstruction, especially someone they perceive as close to them. It's threatening to their own worldview. If you take apart your house of blocks, is mine going to get taken down too? And so under threat, I have seen otherwise beautiful, loving, God-centered people who I know care about me or care about my friends turn and harshly draw lines in the sand. I've seen them question others' theology, rejecting any teaching that doesn't fit their agreed-upon sources. That's the knowledge. That's the, the knowledge critique, right? I've seen them accuse my friends and I for being too emotionally compromised. You're only changing your mind because you think you're gay. Or because your sister's gay or your daughter's gay, right? Implying that an emotionally informed experience is somehow delegitimizing rather than a vital experience to actually be paying attention to and centering. Amen? But for those who are able to actually trust the spirit through the journey of deconstruction, I believe that many of us find the journey doesn't have to mean losing Jesus. It actually means finding him in beautiful places we just couldn't have gone before. Amen. The last experience of Nicodemus is towards the very end of John's gospel. It comes right after Jesus has been falsely accused, tortured, and unjustly executed by the system Nicodemus was once a part of. But in the story of the trial and execution of Jesus, we don't see the person, this person of power still standing with his friends, the accusers, with the system he has begun not only to question in the dark, but to push back on in the day. We find Nicodemus somewhere else, 
altogether. The story picks up just after Jesus has died. In John 19, verse 38. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, because he feared the Jewish leaders, asked Pilate if he could remove the body of Jesus. Pilate gave him permission. So he went and took the body away. Nicodemus, the man who had previously come to Jesus at night, accompanied Joseph, carrying a mixture of myrrh and aloes, weighing about 75 pounds. Then they took Jesus' body and wrapped it with the aromatic spices and strips of linen cloth, according to Jewish burial customs. Now at the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden was a new tomb where no one had yet been buried. And so because it was the Jewish day of preparation and the tomb was nearby, they placed Jesus' body there. This is where we find Nicodemus, at the end of the story, together with another member of the Sanhedrin, who seems to have been on his own journey of deconstruction, Joseph of Arimathea. These two seem to have found one another, allies, followers of Jesus, amongst a group who has declared Jesus their enemy. And in this moment, when the other Sanhedrin are declaring victory, right? They're off having a party. And Jesus' closest friends, his disciples, have scattered in fear. Joseph and Nicodemus go to do the hard but beautiful work of honoring Jesus in death. Proclaiming through their actions who they understand him to truly be. The text says Nicodemus brought 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes. Now that's an easy detail to skim by, but even on just a casual reading, right? If you think about it, it's like, that seems like it's probably a lot. In fact, it is. It is quite a lot. In their day, the average body was embalmed with about three quarters of a pound of spices. But it was customary to honor people of value with a lot more. So Nicodemus was going extravagantly beyond what was expected, bringing 100 times the amount normally used on a person to tend to the body of Jesus. Scholars say in today's market, the value of this perfume would be about 150 to $200,000. Okay? If you live in the Midwest, that's your house. If you're here, maybe it's part of your down payment. But it's a lot of money, right? An extraordinary amount of money for anyone. This is not how you bury someone. Certainly not someone you think is a criminal. This is the way you only would bury the most valued of kings. Here, with this small detail, we see what a journey Nicodemus has taken He's taken a big journey from skeptic coming to Jesus in the dark of night to one willing to push back on the systems of his day to one who now gives generously, freely, extravagantly of his own resources to honor the one he has followed on his journey of deconstruction and reconstruction. He has come with his friend Joseph to worship the one who showed him how to be born from above. John doesn't tell us about Nicodemus' reaction to Jesus' resurrection. But I have to imagine he felt amazingly moved. It was profound. He was validated and encouraged to see the power of this new life from above 
so powerfully confirmed. Last weekend was a beautiful experience for many of us. You can put up the pictures. As we celebrated in the streets of Oakland our new life here, born from above at Oakland Pride. I don't know about you, but it was a total joy to me to be in a place where we could fully celebrate and proclaim the good news of female leadership, queer inclusion, racial justice, and Jesus, as the signs on our truck proclaimed. This is just one example of the good fruit of a journey of deconstruction and reconstruction that many of us in our community have been honored to take. And I look forward to more experiences of freedom and joy with Jesus as we take our hard questions to him and find him leading us into a journey with the Spirit that's unlike anything we could have predicted or controlled. Amen? So as we end, I'm going to invite you to take a few minutes to consider what are the questions you have found yourself wondering in the dark? What questions have you wondered in the past? What questions have led you on a journey of being born from above, deconstructing? What questions are you wondering now? What would it mean for you Not to silence the questions, not to stuff the questions, not to feel threatened by them, but to be able to bring them to Jesus. What would it mean for Haven to be a community safe enough to hear the questions and honor the asking? Would it be possible that we could hear them without feeling threatened without needing to silence one another. But that together we could bless one another's deconstructing and reconstructing that perhaps we might build something new together. We're going to take a moment just to reflect on that. And there are, there are note cards on your seats and at the back tables. And I'd encourage you, if you have a question that comes to mind, or a couple, to write it down. And there's two things I'm thinking about with this. Um, If you are willing to share that question out loud at Haven, I would like you to put your name on it. Because we're going to be in the coming series, I'm thinking, starting each teaching with one one of you. For five to seven minutes, just sharing your question, sharing kind of things. If it's something that you've already deconstructed and are on your way to building, that's fine. If it's something you feel like you're right at the beginning of, that's fine. Um, It can even just be a topic. You're like, I don't even know what the question is, but Bible. (laughs) Like, that's fine. Um, I have all kinds of questions around this. Um, If you don't feel like you want to share... um, Don't put your name on it. That's fine. I would still love to know your questions because I'm hoping that we'll get a chance to tackle a number of them in this series. Okay? So when it's time for responsive worship, you'll have the opportunity to just put those cards in our little box in the back.
Okay, we use it to collect offerings and things like this. So, um, so yeah. So we're just going to take a minute to reflect, to write down a question or two or three. If you want to put your name on it, you can. And then we'll pray and move into conversation. <laughs> 